0: Good morning, everybody. I'm going to make you stand again. (laughs) Uh, If you could stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning's passage is Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do you need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him. And to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The reading of God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is humbling and disturbing to read of the treatment of your son. um, Who came to save the people who spit on him, who hit him, who mock him, who lie about him. I pray, Lord, we would not be guilty of this in our hearing of God's word and in my preaching of it, that we would tell the truth about your son, Jesus, and that we would be ready to receive it. I pray that um, in our examination of this passage, uh, we would be able to see Jesus, not for who we think he is, but for who you say he is, who he really is. Help me this morning um, to be faithful to that message The message of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ, whose name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, everybody. My name is Will Bausch. I'm an elder here at Mercy Hill. Uh, I am a teacher by trade, and I've had people say to me, as they've known I'm going to preach, things like, well, you speak in front of people all the time. This should be easy for you. It's very different. (laughs) It's terrifying, um, and it's awesome. Kind of both at the same time. So bear with me as I uh, try to open this passage for you and show you what I think that the Lord has shown me in the last few weeks. In 2020, religious books generated 667.2 million dollars in sales revenue, surpassing 600 million US dollars for the third consecutive year. That's a lot of money spent on books. The current bestseller list for religious nonfiction from Publishers Weekly lists the number one book as, and here it is, The Women of the Bible Speak, The Wisdom of Sixteen Women and Their Lessons for Today by Shannon Bream with 34,969 units sold. I just want to read just a brief excerpt from this book so you get a feel what it's about. For many of us, 2020 was a year filled with pain, physical, financial, emotional, and mental. We often felt isolated, kept away from our loved ones, and disconnected from our houses of worship and the sense of community they provide. There were adversities we could not have imagined we'd face in our lifetimes. Hardships piled up, one on top of the other, and yet there was hope, there was refuge, there was inspiration and healing. So that's the number one selling, currently, religious book. Not just Christian book, but religious book. Um, The second best-selling book is this book right here, Get Out of Your Head, Stopping the Spiral of Toxic Thoughts by Jeannie Allen, and this has sold over 34,000 units. I want to read just a brief piece of this book so you can get a feel what this is about. Um, When we are overcome by the grandeur of a snowy mountain peak, or delighted by a beautiful song, when we sit silently in an old church and marvel at the way the sunlight seeps through the stained glass windows, or when we're delighted by our children's squeals as they'll run through the sprinkler in the backyard, we let go of our it's all about me fixation. Just an idea of kind of what this book's about. And then the third best-selling book um, is this book called Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe by Vodi Bakum. And this has sold 20,000 some units. Um, just a little excerpt from this book The anti-racist movement has many of the hallmarks of a cult, including staying close enough to the Bible to avoid immediate detection and hiding the fact that it is a new theology and a new glossary of terms that diverge ever so slightly from Christian orthodoxy. Um, Those of you who know me know that I generally only read books by dead people. Um, So this was really out of Amazon was like, are you sure you want to buy these books? You know, I'm not not used to reading newer books. And it's mainly because I don't trust them. Um, very much and uh, I, I actually however don't trust older books very much either and that, that's kind of where I'm gonna start uh, with this message. See this snapshot of religious publishing not only tempts us to apply Paul's observation about Athens remember when he says people of Athens I see that in every way you are very religious to our own nation but also just suggests that we're seeking to solve our problems personal problems, societal problems, short-term problems, long-term problems, using our wallets and using our religion. So what has that $667.2 million of religion gotten us as a nation, as individuals? Maybe some peace of mind temporarily, maybe some good habits, maybe sixteen ninety-five dollars less in our bank accounts. Each of these books all three of these, argue something about religious practice. Either formal religious practice prescribed by a holy book or by a church community or a religious authority of some kind or informal religious practice, what I think a lot of people would probably call spirituality. Sometimes along with this is a dose of psychology, of self-help, politics, race relations. A lot of other things come along with this. Each of these books is bearing witness to something that we should do or something that we should avoid so that we can solve our most urgent problems. Which begs the question, how do we know if we can trust any of it? I already expressed to you, I have a lot of doubt when I'm given a a book that proclaims to tell me how to think or, or how to approach a problem in my life or the world. I'm sure if I compared these three books, I'd find contradictions between them. I'm sure if I spoke to some of you out there, or maybe some of you have read some of these books, I'd find varying opinions on their value or, or whether the things that they're arguing are legitimate. And I could pick up any three books that proclaim to tell you how to live and, and it'd be the same thing. See, our text this morning, Mark chapter 14, verses 53 to 65, demonstrates the consequences of believing and also shaping your life around false religion and the consequences of obeying the one true religion. It demonstrates that those who claim to know the truth about how we should live, how you should respond to crisis, how you should worship, are trading in lies if their teachings don't have as their core the one faithful, truthful witness to who Jesus Christ is. As Jesus is brought before the council here in Mark 14, What he says about himself is like a strong wind that blows away all false religion, all of the advice and the solutions. And what's left is surprising, it's beautiful, and it's of supreme value. Because without what's left, Jesus Christ and him crucified at the center, what is left is is of no value. In Mark 14, 53 to 65, we can compare man's faithfulness, faithlessness, sorry, to Christ's faithfulness. And we can also compare the lies that emanate from the people present at this sham trial to the truth proclaimed by Jesus. Through the examination of this text, it's my hope that each of us will reject counterfeit man-made religion that relies on something other than Jesus to give it value, and instead rely on the only true payment for our sin debt, Jesus Christ. Even though the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the bestseller lists, most of the world today does not. What Mark reveals about the religion of man and what our Lord says about himself in this passage should renew a Christian's determination to rely on Christ alone for certainty that what Jesus has promised, a right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, will be fulfilled. It should also lead the non-Christian to either tear his garment like the high priest Caiaphas does in anger that his false religion is revealed to be worthless or, and I pray this would be the case for us here, to turn away from false gospels, from good advice, from our own works to rely primarily upon Jesus Christ. In our passage, we learn of a man, and this is the most surprising part of all my preparation, by the way. This is the part I'm most excited about. In this passage, we learn of a man, one of the disciples of Jesus. His name is Peter, who appears to have been faithful in his actions, but in many ways may have actually been faithless. So I'm going to look at verses 53 to 54 again. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. As an English teacher, one of my favorite literary devices to point out to students is foreshadowing. Foreshadowing is like, it's like a promise. Right? It's when something mentioned at a certain point in a narrative is preparing the audience for something that's gonna be revealed or mentioned later. Here in this passage, it's that line, Peter followed him at a distance and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Relatedly, there's a concept in literature called Chekhov's gun. And the idea there is if you show a gun in act one of a play or a story, it better go off by act three. In other words, it's kind of another way of thinking about foreshadowing, right? Um, Peter here, right, is Chekhov's gun. This is a seemingly unrelated detail, right, this verse 12. Um, Oh, one verse out of 12, sorry. And it better be there for a reason, this verse. The gun of Peter's denial, however, won't go off until next week's text. But narratively, it may as well have. The more I examined the context of today's passage, the more I realized that this verse could easily be brushed past, but it shouldn't be. While this passage seems to be largely about the religious establishment of the day, the high priest Caiaphas, the chief priests, the elders, the trial of Jesus, the sham trial, it can't be taken out of the context of Mark as a whole, and particularly chapter 14 of the gospel. Peter's all over chapter 14, This is the thing that blew my mind that I never noticed. So for example, look at verses 26 to 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now look at the verses immediately following. Verses 32 to 39. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death And the flesh is weak okay now look at verses 43 to 47 and immediately while he was still speaking judas came one of the twelve and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders now the betrayer had given him a sign saying the one i will kiss is the man seize him and lead him away under guard and when he came he went up to him at once and said rabbi and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant and the high priest and cut off his ear. We know this is Peter who cut off the air because of the parallel passage in John 18. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jesus said to Peter, "Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" Peter's actions in this chapter including what's foreshadowed here is his eventual denial of christ represent his attempt to follow his own religion his own religious system that's rooted in his own desires and the consequence of his own religious intuition peter seems faithful i mean this is some faithful stuff cutting off an ear for somebody right following somebody when putting yourself at risk right but I i believe this shows actually that he is somewhat faithless He's following a counterfeit self made religion. Look at verses 37 to 38. Peter's not doing what Jesus told him to do. How could he be watching and praying if he's sitting and warming himself by a fire with the guards? Jesus warns him in these verses that to not watch, to not pray, means temptation. And I'm sure we'll see in next week's sermon that Peter succumbs to the temptation. To deny christ regardless of christ's warmings and peter's pride in his religious devotion it seems logical to think that if if peter had listened to jesus to watch and pray rather than to try to insert himself into this final path, step on the the road to jesus's death and resurrection he would have not had the opportunity to deny jesus to fall into sin see even when we think we're most faithful we may actually be faithless this is a pattern for peter falling asleep when told to stay awake cutting off the ear of the guard and now following jesus unwisely and unnecessarily now this is going to be like a knock on Peter's sermon it's really easy to knock on the disciples right who am i to knock on the disciples well no one to knock on the disciples because i can relate to peter here quite a bit actually that's why i, I, I related so well to this passage See, many of the things I think I've been doing for God, I've very often been doing to justify myself. Acting as if my justification, my right standing with God, is found in what I do and what I determine is best, rather than in obeying God's uncomfortable, often inglorious, and often inconvenient commands. I can relate to Peter when he emphatically says, even though they all fall away, I will not, in verse 29 in the same chapter. I've made a lot of promises to God that I've broken. Here's one. Peter doing the same thing I've done many times. I like to think of myself as a loyal person. That's something I really value, loyalty. Yet I have very often not been loyal to God, as Peter is an ear. However, if I'm trying to rely on loyalty for my right standing with God, well, I'm doomed. When Jesus tells Peter in verse 30 that he will deny him three times, Peter seems to double down on his own virtues. If I must die with you, I will not deny you, he says. However, here in our passage that we're studying today in verse 54, Peter's already on his way to denial by doing as he desires beyond what was commanded. Following Jesus to the high priest's residence, waiting with the guards by the fire, this might seem like good, loyal behavior but it's not what Jesus told him to do, to watch and pray. Peter relies on his own works, his own efforts, and this leaves him open to future danger. And that type of reliance on our own efforts and our own works also leaves us open to future danger. Peter's faithlessness is more glaring when compared with the faithfulness of Jesus that we see in this passage. First of all, Jesus goes willingly to the court, knowing what the outcome will be. This is surprising and counterintuitive for sinners like you and me who seek at all costs to avoid danger, to avoid the potential for harm. In Gethsemane in verse 63, or 36, sorry, Jesus prays to the Father, remove this cup from me. But then he adds, yet, not what I will, but what you will. When faced with the suffering that's before him, Jesus' sole desire is to obey the Father. This is because he knows that the road he must walk down to his death is the only one that can save God's chosen people from their own sin. The appearance before the council is one of the first steps down this final road, part of the suffering Jesus was anticipating in Gethsemane. How does Jesus respond in our passage? Faithfully. Jesus is confident that what that he is doing the will of the father he's obedient submitting to this trial with the high priest that has already been rigged against him consider the gall of this high priest questioning jesus the god man it is difficult to imagine how jesus did not respond as god does to job in job 38. then the lord answered job out of the whirlwind and said who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge dress for action like a man i will question you and you will make it known to me where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements surely you know there's sarcasm in the bible i love that or who stretched the line upon it or what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. However, because of Christ's faithfulness, he does not say something like that to this council. His purposes are far greater than this one moment, as we'll soon see. His appearance before the council was necessary to fulfill his mission on earth, and he was not going to waver from that purpose. This mission looked like failure, but it was really the greatest victory. And Jesus was faithful to the work his father had called him to throughout his life here in this passage and to the end. But to Peter, the council, and I believe to us here in this room, his seeming passivity, his death, looked like foolishness rather than obedience. What about the religious system? The religious leaders that are represented in our passage? Let's read verses 55 to 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For they bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Even about this their testimony did not agree. This trial and the motivations behind it are dishonest built upon lies. At the center of all man-made religion is a lie, a denial of the nature of God or what he commands. With the counsel in Mark 14, it's not necessary to do much digging to see where the lies are. For example, the individual witnesses in this passage are deliberately lying, misquoting Jesus who actually said, as recorded in John, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up And the text later goes on to say, referring to his body, not the physical temple. However, even in their lies, these witnesses can't get their story straight. What you say about Jesus matters. To the religious establishment, he was a threat to their authority. He was a potential criminal. He was a terrorist. So in response, they perverted religious practice and their legitimate authority to hold a trial for blasphemy. The religious establishment, the witnesses, they were doing nothing different than we do when we describe Jesus in any other way than he has described himself. But a subjective Jesus is no Jesus at all. The life coach Jesus, the social justice Jesus, the whatever need or label we wish to tack onto Jesus for our felt needs Jesus is unable to save. Saving knowledge of Jesus is only possible when we begin with his words about himself, not words from some teacher or book or our own heads. These words Jesus says about himself, of course, can only be found in Holy Scripture. One role of the church, and one reason I'm a Presbyterian, is to shepherd us and to be faithful to these words God speaks about himself that are found in the Bible. Our creeds, our confessions, and catechisms are ways to keep us accountable to a right interpretation of the words of Jesus to avoid the temptations of our own subjectivity to avoid a religion built on our own ideas about righteousness rather than built upon the actual righteous one hear how peter how paul sorry describes the necessity of knowing this jesus in ephesians 2 verses 13 to 22 In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Isn't that good news? Well, it's only possible with the true Jesus. That only applies to us if that's who we have. Surprisingly, when we examine this passage in Mark, to see what Jesus might say about himself in response to the accusations against him, he first deliberately says nothing. Look at verses 60 to 61. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. I've already said that Jesus had purposes beyond this particular moment that were determining his behavior. And his response here is consistent with one of them to fulfill a messianic promise about himself, a messianic prophecy from Psalm 38, verses 12 to 14. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. I could imagine myself before a court if I were falsely accused and allowed to speak. I know myself well enough by now to know that I couldn't remain silent. But not Jesus. Jesus is in control of himself. He will speak when he wishes. He has no need to defend himself. In fact, the priests, the council, are handing him here the very cup of God's wrath against sinners that he wishes to drink. They are ironically condemning themselves as they seek to kill their prophesied Messiah. When Jesus finally speaks, he reveals his true nature and mission boldly and directly for the first time to the religious authorities. Look at verses 61 to 62. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus finally speaks, It is to reveal the truth that he is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. Not only that, but he's also the Son of Man, a human man prophesied in Daniel 7. He reveals himself to be the God-man, equivalent with God and the true ruler of earth. And that, although today he brings salvation, one day he will also return in judgment the truth about Jesus here wipes away all pretense of a religion built upon any other foundation than himself. If Jesus is the son of God and the prophesied Messiah, there is no other choice but obedience. I am, Jesus says, pointing to the self-revelation of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. The religious authorities, no doubt, would hear this as a reference meant to underline in bold and all caps Jesus' identification with the one true God. Jesus is this direct about his own identity only one other time in Mark, in chapter 8, 27 to 29. And Jesus went on with his disciples in the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now one obvious difference between these revelations of Jesus' identity is the private nature of one, only to his disciples, only out of the lips of Peter, and with the command to keep it secret. And the public nature of the one in our passage. Another obvious difference is the reference to the messianic prophecy about the Son of Man in Daniel seven thirteen to fourteen. In Mark fourteen sixty two, Jesus promises that they will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now look at Daniel chapter seven, verses thirteen to fourteen. I saw in the night visions. why does the high priest tear his garments in response to the self-revelation of jesus fear anger frustration maybe all three i like to see the tearing of his garments as a metaphor for the tearing away of all apparent authority the high priest holds jesus is exposing the nakedness of the religious system of the day of any man-centered religion built on a foundation of anything but himself When we stand before Jesus, the futility of all of our efforts to create a religious system to make ourselves right before God, built upon our own holiness, is similarly revealed. Our garments are torn away before Jesus. Our nakedness is revealed. The high priest, the religious authorities, the disciples, and all of us today need an alien righteousness, one outside of ourselves, to be right with God. That righteousness is in the person of Jesus Christ, who is standing before the Sanhedrin and the high priest and Peter, and who is standing before us right now. Anything or anyone else is unable to save. It is in fact offensive to the one true God. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, and you'll see that the Lord condemns man-made religion that has the appearance of devotion and righteousness, but at its core is empty. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates They have become a burden to me I'm weary of bearing them When you spread out your hands I will hide my eyes from you Even though you make many prayers I will not listen Your hands are full of blood Wash yourselves Make yourselves clean Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the, will- the widow's cause. For those who confess Christ, Jesus' self-revelation is good news, as it is for here- us here today. Yes, we are sinners. Yes. Our religious works are of no value in and of themselves because they are done with unclean hearts and minds and hands. But as Romans chapter 3, 9 through 25 reveals, Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem of our inability to save ourselves. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. A very long time ago, um, I took a class called Grasping God's Word with John Quay matt knows what i'm talking about and one thing i clearly remember john quay saying back in like 2004 was whenever you see all in the bible it means all and this is like all five times no one no one no one all all all, right all everyone without exception their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is describing us. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now here's the good news. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." While verses 9 through 8 of Romans 13 could very well explain the reason for the response of the Jews to the revelation of the Messiah in the person of Jesus in Mark 14. In other words, they feel condemned, and when people are condemned, they often act the way these people did. They double down on their convictions about themselves. This doesn't have to be the end of our story, and it didn't have to be the end of theirs. The righteousness of God is available to us, and if we repent— and receive it as a gift through faith we are right with god we are justified rely on the one who justifies rather than the works either prescribed by scripture some religious system or yourself i'm not saying these books are bad i didn't read them i may read one of them i don't i'm sure there's some great things in these books i'm sure the things that they talk about are important but these are not things to rely on Without Christ to guarantee the value of these works, your spirituality, your attempts to be good, your religion are as worthless as monopoly money if you're hoping they'll save you from your sin debt and lead you to eternal life. Rather than tearing your garments and condemning your Savior to a figurative death by ignoring his self-revelation or angrily arguing against it, in favor of a system of self-improvement or piety, repent and believe that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Then, and only then, can you have confidence that your relationship with God is restored, that your sins are forgiven, and you will one day receive the promised hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, that although we don't deserve it, you sent your son Jesus to die for our sins. And this is available to all of us here today. I pray that we would respond to this good news, the self-revelation of Jesus Christ as fi- found in Holy Scripture. We would repent. We would believe the gospel. Send your Holy Spirit to do that work in the hearts of people who have yet to believe and to do the work in the hearts of those who currently believe to strengthen our faith, to lead to further obedience. Lord, may your word today bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.